Good morning. Good morning. Well, I want to say thank you to Thomas last week for filling in for me as I was on vacation and doing a great job preaching from God's Word out of Luke. Thank you, brother. And I'm just uh, grateful. I'm really grateful for this church, for this body, and happy to be here. You know, there is no, there is no perfect church. How many of you know that? Okay, there is no perfect church, but I'm grateful for this one. And what happens sometimes to people, the same thing in relationships. There are no perfect relationships either, right? Every relationship has its weaknesses, its problems. Every church has its weaknesses and its problems. But if you focus on that, you'll destroy the relationship. You'll leave the church. But if you focus on the the good parts of the church or a relationship, then it can grow, then it can flourish, then it can be something really beautiful. And I see that the same way. If you're here, I, I just trust that you're focusing on the parts that you really like and that you're talking about that kind of stuff and emphasizing that stuff. And if you see something that's a problem, then fix it. Fix it. Don't complain about it, but fix it. That's how, that's how we grow together as a body of Christ, and that's how we will advance. But for, for myself, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed man to be here. I'm a blessed man to, to know you people and to be with you in the body of Christ I'm just privileged, and uh, glad I'm here with you today, worshiping our Lord. So this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter two. We're back in we're back in Romans. We're staying in through Romans here. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible, I just ask you to grab one of those blue Bibles underneath the seats around you. And if you turn to page 940, that'll bring you to the text that we're looking at. So I went on vacation to, when I went on vacation, we went to the river. We haven't been there in a long time. We go to this place called Park Moabi just outside of, of Needles. And we had, a lot, we had a lot of fun. We were only there a few days. But one of the things I really like about being there is at night, when you look up into the sky, yeah, you see you know what I'm talking about? You see, wow, stars. I didn't know we had so so many stars, planets even, and, and just beautiful. They're brilliant, they're bright. And as you know, or maybe you don't know, the reason that is is because when you get farther away from the city lights, it allows more darkness. Because the city lights, also, actually all of the city lights reflect against our atmosphere and, and kind of drown out the, the brilliance, the beauty of our galaxy. Well, the gospel, beloved, the gospel is similar to those stars that I see at the, at the river when I get that opportunity to get away from the city lights. Against the, the darkness, okay? And the darkness I'm defining as God's judgment. God's judgment. Against that blackness, against that darkness, the gospel is allowed to shine brilliantly, beautifully. You actually, it's not as if the gospel becomes more brilliant. Right? It's not as if those stars become more brilliant when they're placed against the darkness. They're always that brilliant. But once I see them against that background, wow, they stand out to me. And that is, that is how the gospel is. Against the background of divine judgment, the gospel appears that much more glorious, that much more beautiful. Now, this section in Romans that we are in, written, written by Paul, it was written by Paul, listen, it was written by Paul to prove that all human beings, every single one of us, are guilty. <laughs> Boy, that's a wonderful message to hear, right? But it is the message, it is the truth, that we are guilty and we are inexcusable before God. Inexcusable before God for our guilt and our sin. Further, that no one, not a single one of us, can do anything to make ourselves right with God. That's what Paul is laboring to prove in this section. We're guilty, we're inexcusable, we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We desperately, every single one of us, need a Savior and desperately need the gift of righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us need it. A righteousness, beloved, that makes sinners right with God. 
and acceptable to him. And guess what? Forever removes the threat of his wrath. Forever removes it. And not only that, but it qualifies us for God's eternal blessings. Qualifies us. Nothing else can qualify us. We can't qualify ourselves. But it is the gift of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ that qualifies us for all of God's blessings. Which includes, beloved, as we sang about this morning, a place, an eternal kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God that is to come. And this, beloved, as you know, as you've read the scriptures, is a place where there will no longer be any death, no mourning, no crying. No crying for sorrow. Maybe there will be tears of joy, but no crying for sorrow. No pain. No physical pain. No emotional pain. No spiritual pain. Can you believe that? It is this gospel that qualifies us for all of those blessings. A place where there will be utter peace, perfect happiness, and unimaginable joy. That's the gospel. And as Christians, as we move through this very dark section of Romans, now some people, when, they're, when, when, we get, when we're doing this section, okay, I understand because I'm dealing with it all week long. So you guys get it for an hour. I deal with it for 20 hours every week. 20 hours of my week are poured into looking at that text. So I get it. This is a difficult section of, of Scripture, this is the wrath of God. This is, you are unworthy. You are, you are guilty sinners before God. You deserve hell. That's what this section is. But you've got to understand what Paul is doing. He's painting it really black. He's making it really dark. So that when he introduces the gospel, just a, few, just a little bit away from here in chapter 3, when he starts to pour out the truths of that, you stand back and go, wow, that is amazing in light of what I know I deserve. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He has saved us. That is what we will learn. He has saved us from what we truly deserve, the wrath of God. And He alone has opened the door that is unopenable otherwise. He has opened it to us as sinners. A door that leads to incredible, incredible blessings that God is willing to give to all those who have faith in Christ. And beloved, as we learn that, as we see that, the brilliance, the beauty of the gospel against the background of our sin, our guilt, and our deserving of God's wrath, our appreciation for the gospel. Now listen to me. This is, this is how we connect these things. Our appreciation for the gospel should should grow. It shouldn't be magnified. Right? And it should translate into a greater love for and devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Which will supply the motivation and focus that we need to live our lives for Christ as we await His return. Listen. Sometimes people tell me, I am... I just am not motivated really to live, to live the Christian life. I'm just having some struggling. I'm struggling to do this thing. The way to fix that is not to say, I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to try harder to really love God. It's not the way to fix it, beloved. The way to fix it is to preach the gospel to yourself, to focus on the truths of the gospel. And that includes... The wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. It includes that. Because when you include that in the picture and you begin to preach or tell yourself the truths of the gospel, you become overwhelmed in gratitude for this great and gracious and loving and merciful God. And that gratitude then motivates you to want to do whatever the Lord would require of you personally. That's how you change it. That's how you fix it. Not by trying harder, 
but by realizing the truth of the gospel in the light of the dark background of God's wrath and becoming so overwhelmed in gratefulness that you wanna, you'll, you're willing to do anything for the Lord. And your heart is changed. So for us as Christians, that's how we should see this section of Romans. But for those who are not Christians, for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have not repented and turned to Jesus Christ, this dark section of Romans should show you very clearly how desperately you need Jesus. How desperately you need Him. And just how glorious and awesome the message of the gospel really is. So that when it is presented, as we move through the book of Romans, you will gladly and gratefully receive it and believe it and be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. You with me? You with me? That's it. That's, that's what you and I, either Christian or non-Christian, there's just two types of people in the world, Christian and non-Christian. So they're represented in this room. For the Christian, we read through this, we shouldn't be discouraged by it. We shouldn't be weighed down by it. We should become more grateful for it. For the non-Christian, you should, you should be terrified by it. And it is a way of preparing your heart for the gospel so that you will not blow it off. Ah, it's just the gospel. Whatever. I've heard it a million times. But that you will see it in all of its brilliance and glory and be awestruck as you look at it, just as when I was on the river looking up into the stars at night against the darkness. In our text today, Paul will continue to speak about the righteous and fair judgment of God of all people, for the Jew and also for the Gentile, as he has been doing in the previous verses that we have been looking at. But now he includes something else in his conversation. He includes the law of God, the law of God, and the discussion of the judgment of God in relation to the law of God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Are you ready? All right. As I said, if you don't have a Bible, grab one. Look in the Word of God with me. See what the Lord is saying to you this morning. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'll read through verse 16. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. If you have a bulletin on the inside, you'll find an outline, as many of you already know. This morning we're going to consider two reasons that together, as we take these reasons together, affirm, affirm the greatness of the gospel so that our love for and devotion to Jesus Christ might increase. Okay? That's, it's that simple. We're going to look at this, and the result should be that your love for and devotion to Jesus Christ should increase. Those two reasons together are, first, everyone, every single human being possesses, and I'll show you this from the text, in full or in part, completely or partially, a knowledge of God's law or God's will for how they should and shouldn't behave otherwise known as morality. Two, no one, every single human being throughout all of history, no one, apart from Christ, has ever lived up to the knowledge of God's law that they possess. No one has. Making everyone guilty before God and deserving, rightly, of condemnation. Okay? So again, you hear condemnation. Oh, remember the gospel. Okay, it paints the picture black. It makes the gospel more brilliant for you as a Christian. So here we go. Before we look at these points, I want to cover a few things right from the text that will help get us headed in the right direction. In verse 12, 
In verse 12, Paul mentions two groups of people. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So you have those who have sinned without the law and those who have sinned under the law. Do you see it there in the text? Two groups of people Paul's talking about. Clearly, both groups have sinned. You see that? Right? Okay, so we got that. But the difference is one group is described as having sinned without the law. And the other group as having sinned under the law. You see it in the text? Verse 12, it's right there. So, let's answer a few questions that would immediately arise from reading verse 12. What is the law? What is the law that Paul refers to here? And the second question, what are the identities of the two groups that Paul is talking about? Now, when we go to answer the first question, you're going to find that it actually answers the second question. So, the law is commonly used by Paul to refer to the commandments, the orders, the instructions. Commandments is probably the best word, because not just instructions. These are things to be obeyed that were given by God through his servant Moses to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. All right, let me do that again. The law is commonly used by Paul, that word, to refer to the commandments that were given by God through his servant Moses, to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the law that Paul is referring to here. This law concerned his rules for how the Jewish people were to live. Bible teachers will sometimes refer to this law as the Mosaic Law. Have any of you heard that? It's okay if you haven't. They'll call it the Mosaic Law. Why? Because it's a law that was given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel, the Mosaic Law. The many details of this law are recorded in the part of the Bible that we refer to as, what do you think? The Old Testament. That whole big portion, many of these, the regulations, the details, all that of the law are recorded there in the Old Testament. This law, you're probably familiar with this, would include the Ten Commandments. Okay? It would include that. It's part of the Mosaic Law. Law And most of you, even though you're not familiar with all of the Mosaic Law, probably, are familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? So you, you know those? Honor your mom and dad. Don't murder people. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Love the Lord God. All these things, right? Don't have any idols. That's, the ten, that's part of this law, the Mosaic Law. You with me so far? Now, the Gentiles... Who are those people? When we talk, we've said it before. When, we, when you see Gentiles or Greeks in Rome, when it says Greeks, same idea, Gentiles, that simply means non-Jewish people. So the Bible kind of categorizes people, at least in the New Testament, you have Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and Jewish people. Okay? Within Gentiles, you have many, many, many nations, many representations, but it all follows under the umbrella of Gentiles. And then you have the Jewish people, it's just one umbrella, the Jewish people, and those are the distinctions. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world, were not, listen to me, were not recipients of the written law, the Mosaic law that the Jewish people possessed. They were not recipients of it. In other words, they were ignorant. That's not a derogatory word. They didn't know. They weren't aware of the, the written law. They didn't know it like the Jewish People knew it. This law that was specifically given to the nation of Israel by God through Moses. So it is the Gentiles that Paul is referring to when he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law, without the law, will also perish without the law. It is the Gentile nations. It is the Gentile people. Those nations were not special recipients of the Mosaic written law given by God to Moses, to the nation of Israel, out at Mount Sinai. Okay? With me so far? So it is the Gentiles that Paul's referring to there, as I said in verse 12. For all of sin without the law will also perish without the law. And it is the Jewish people, then, that he is referring to when he says, all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged by the law. The Jews, listen to me, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, were considered as being under the law because God made them specifically the recipients of his law and they acknowledged that law. Yes, we see it, we receive it. And they agreed with God in covenant, a contractual obligation to keep that very law. And if they did keep it, there would be blessings. And if they didn't keep it, there would be cursings. But they made an agreement with God. They were living under God's written law. So they are those, the Jewish people who are under the law. The Gentiles are represented by those who are without the law. You got that? That's going to be very important as we move through this section. All right, so the Gentiles were ignorant, but Paul of God's law, of God's written law, the Mosaic law, but Paul says that they are going to perish still for their sins in the judgment. They're going to perish for their sins. They're without the law. They're going to perish without the law. Now, the Greek word translated perish in the English Bible here is also used in John 3.16. You guys know that passage, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have the everlasting or eternal life. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And in both places, that word is used to designate the ultimate destiny of all of those who are not saved. Okay? That's what the word, that's how it's being used. That's how it's being used here. Perish. It doesn't mean cease to exist. It means they are going somewhere reserved for all those who are not saved. It's also used by Jesus in Matthew 28 in connection with all of those who will be put in hell at the final judgment. That word is used, that Greek word. Translated here, perish. Translated there, danger. So listen, even though the Gentiles didn't have God's written law like the Jews did, even though they didn't have God's written moral code, his written moral code to live by like the nation of Israel did, they would still perish for their sins. You with me? So now here's a question. How can they be held accountable for something that they didn't know about? I mean, if they didn't know, hear me, if they didn't know what was moral and what wasn't, would it be fair for God to punish them for sinning if they didn't know? It wouldn't be. I'm going to tell you the answer to that if you're thinking, no, it wouldn't be fair. You're right. It wouldn't be fair. Do you hold your kids accountable for things they don't know? I mean, your kids would scream injustice and they would be right. Right? But when they know and they don't do it, Oh, that's a different story. So no, it would not be fair. But listen, we haven't got through the rest of the text here. The reality is they did know something about God's will. They did. They did know something about how they should and shouldn't behave. And the fact is, all people do. All people do. So that brings me to the first point. Everyone possesses in full or in part a knowledge of God's law or God's will for how they should and shouldn't behave. Listen, there's no question that the Jews knew what God expected of them. Do you think that's a fair statement? It is an absolute fair statement. They were recipients of God's written law. They had it written down, given to them by Moses. They acknowledged it. They even agreed to abide by it. They even took great pride in it. And they even looked down on the Gentiles because they didn't possess the law. They looked down on them. They were lower than them because we are the keepers of God's holy and divine law. And because they were the possessors of that law, you know what? They could not claim any ignorance concerning God's will for how they were to live, how they were to behave. They couldn't claim any ignorance, beloved. They lived under the law. But just because the Gentiles did not have the same Mosaic law 
the law given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai? They were not without any knowledge of God's law. They were not. They knew God's will for how they were to live. Look back at the text with me. I'm going to show you that from the text. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles... Paul's going to explain now his statement that he made in 12, beginning here, but he comes here in 14, starts to begin to explain about the Gentiles. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show... They demonstrate that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Let's break this down, okay? Let's try to simplify this. Verse 14, Paul states twice. Maybe you you saw it when we were reading it. Twice for emphasis that the Gentiles do not have the law. He's making that very clear, which is a reference to the Mosaic law that the Jews did possess, but the Gentiles did not. You with me there? Yet even so, Paul points out that in certain cases, the Gentiles did the kind of things that were required by the Mosaic law. They did them. Even though they didn't have the law, they did some of the things that were required by our law. Okay, so what is he talking about? Well, here's the truth. They didn't always act immorally. Okay? They didn't always, they weren't just like um, immorality from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and then they slept and it's hard to be immoral unless you're in your dreams or something. But immoral, they weren't immoral all the time. They actually practiced or performed Morality, these Gentile people, they, they were in compliance. You can see examples of them being in compliance even though they didn't know God. They didn't have a special relationship with God. They knew about Him through creation, but they had no special relationship with Him. They were not given that Mosaic law. They didn't have God's specific will about how they were to behave. And yet, they behaved from time to time according to that law. So... They honored their parents. They cared for their families. They helped the less fortunate. They didn't always steal, but sometimes, you know, they didn't steal. There were examples of that. They were faithful in their marriages. Faithful in their marriages, why would they do that? They even stood up for justice. What is right and what is wrong? And that's what Paul means when he says they are a law to themselves. Not that they, now listen, not that they made up their own laws, right? We're just going to, we're going to figure out how to live and we'll decide what's right and what's wrong. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not that they made up their own laws or they lived according to their own standards. But here's what Paul is saying. Their behavior revealed that they had some knowledge in and of themselves, of God's standards of what is right and what is wrong, even though they didn't possess the Mosaic law. You understand what I'm saying? Now, beloved, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, we, we come under that category. That means that you and those in far-off nations and everywhere else, not part, don't have the Mosaic law, they aren't privileged to have those things. According to Paul... They know, we know something about how God wants us to behave. We know. And Paul will now go further to explain his point. Look back at the text with me. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. In case he's just going to make it very clear. They, who's the they? The Gentiles, those without the law, they show by their behavior that the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's written on their hearts. By what they do, you can see that the basic moral requirements of the law have been stamped or written on their hearts. 
Only, when the Bible talks about heart, is it talking about the pumping, the organ that pumps blood out? It's not talking about that. It's talking about the center of our will, our emotion, kind of where we make our decisions, right? That's what it's talking about. It's been written there on our hearts. And we know that because they are complying. We see evidence of them complying with the law of God. Why do they do that? Here's why they do it. God's law has been written on their hearts. One writer says it this way. Although they do not have the law in their hands, like the Jewish people did, they do have its requirements in their hearts because God has written them there. Another writer adds this. The Gentiles, while not possessing the law of Moses, nevertheless have access to knowledge of God's will for them. Concerning what? Concerning their morality. Concerning how they are to behave. Concerning what is right and concerning what is wrong. This fact still proves true today. Even if someone has never heard God's word, never heard it. And by the way, there's places in the world, many still, where that is the case. Even in the U.S. It's unbelievable, but even in the U.S. there are places where people have never They've never been exposed to God's word. They've never heard. And the more secular we become, the more non-religious we become, that's becoming more frequent where people don't, they've never read it. They may have heard about the Bible, but they've never actually opened it and looked at it, never heard about it, never read it for themselves. But in all those cases, you will still find examples, one after another, of those very same people, even though they don't know what God requires of them because they've never read the word, they have not been recipients of the Mosaic Law, They still behave in such a way that demonstrates an innate or natural knowledge of what is truly right and what is truly wrong. They still do. They still do. Do they do it perfectly? No. But when an unbeliever says, it is not right for you to cheat on me. It is not right for you to take my wife. Where do they get that? Where do they get that? Now, it's possible in our society, you'd say, well, they got it because our society says that. But they have gone to places in the world where there's been no influence of a Christian society, and yet they find, even in tribes, that these people still know it is not okay for another man to take another man's wife. They know. How do they know that? They believe that it's not okay to steal How do they know that? They've never been exposed to the Word of God. How do they know? Well, according to the Word of God, they know because God's moral law, when He makes a human being, He stamps it right on their heart. Now, sin distorts that. We can mess that up. We can ignore it. But we can't remove it. We can't remove it. Humanity, beloved, here's what we learn in this section. Humanity is born. Every person is born with a moral compass. God's moral law is written on their heart. And guess what? That means it makes every single human being accountable to God when they violate or break that moral law. It makes them accountable. Look back at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Here we go. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, Paul says that their conscience, their conscience also bears witness. Now, Thomas, you might be surprised by this, but when I looked up the word conscience in the Greek dictionary for a better definition of that, that Greek word that's translated conscience, I want to show you guys what I found. Uh, this, is, this is what I found for that Greek word. Did you, can you believe that? Jiminy Cricket. How many of you have seen Pinocchio? Okay, so if you haven't, this makes no sense to you, and you don't understand why anybody's laughing. Uh, always let your conscience be your guide, right? Okay, so Jiminy Cricket, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a cricket. 
who was given to Pinocchio by uh, the Blue Fairy and would serve uh, as Jiminy Cricket, or, uh, Pinocchio, the wooden boy, who wanted to be a real boy, uh, would serve as his conscience, would ride along with him and, and say, this is right and this is wrong. So certainly, uh, you can take that down. I'm, not, I, I'm just trying to show you. Yes, we're serious here in Romans. You, you can take it down. <laughs> this is serious. The text is serious. But listen, we can have fun too. And I did that for the kids that are stuck in here and I have to listen to this for 45 minutes. So there was your little bit. Did you enjoy that? Is that fun? Okay. That's all I have for you guys. I'm sorry, but... It's the best I could do under the circumstances. Seriously, though, the conscience is a part of our human nature. It is not something that we receive from the blue fairy like, like Pinocchio did, but it's something that actually God puts in us. He puts in every single one of us. Now, we could spend a great deal of time discussing all that the Bible says about the conscience, but because of time, I'm going to limit my comments just to the text today. The conscience is that part of a person that acts as a judge, as an internal judge, if you will. And in the case of Romans 2.15, it informs the person if their behavior is right or wrong based on, hear me, based on the moral law that God has written on each person's heart. As a result of your behavior, what you do, or what you're thinking about doing, you will have thoughts accusing you of guilt or sin. That's your conscience. Or sometimes even excusing you of your guilt or sin, saying that's okay to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Now we can talk more about conscience, but again today, I just want to limit it to this particular section. The conscience can be defiled. It can be ruined by sin. You can destroy your conscience. You can sear it. All of these things are true. You can ruin it, but... On the surface, that's the function of the conscience. God gives it to you, writes his moral law in your heart, and then it begins to act as judge and says, no, no, no. So sometimes we see this displayed as, you know, and this is a distortion of what it is. Like you'll have the little good angel and the little devil, and they're both talking to you, and you're supposed to listen to your little good angel over here. Listen, that's nonsense. But what we do know is there's a conscience that conscience's function is to judge you in light of God's word or God's law, moral law that's written on your heart, and it renders a verdict to you. And then as a result, you have thoughts either accusing you or sometimes excusing you. Do you understand? Now, all of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I don't have to, I'm explaining to you what that thing is inside. But you know about it already. If you've lived long enough, you know about the conscience. You know about it. But I'm telling you how it works, how it functions now. The way, one writer says this, the way conscience operates is described as a process of accusation or defense by the thoughts of a man. The inner life being pictured as a kind of debating forum, kind of just going on inside of your head or in your heart, so that at times he or she finds himself exonerated at the bar of conscience, proven innocent, or at other times convicted of wrong. Now, we're not going to get into the whole, what do you do with that? Because, right? Do, I mean, do you, once you're convicted, do you say, oh, that is wrong, I don't do it? Or do you do it anyway? That's another story. But right now, we're just talking about the conscience and, and how it functions. Now, sometimes people will do various harmful things to themselves, like getting intoxicated. You can do that in, a, in all kinds of ways. I don't have to tell you about that. And they do this sometimes, not always, to try to silence their conscience, to try to silence it, to try to shut it up, to make it go away. Why? Because the guilt that they have for their sinful behavior begins to really bother them. The guilt begins to weigh on them. They know what they are doing is wrong. They know it. No one even has to tell them. Inside, they have a battle going on. The conscience is screaming, guilty, guilty, guilty. And if you take enough alcohol or the appropriate drugs, eventually you can, you can deaden that. Of course, you kill yourself in the process too. But guess what? You can't deaden it forever. You can't silence it forever. 
Look back at the text with me. Romans 2, 15 through 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay, now, this is what I think Paul's point is. Included in that day, that coming day of God's judgment, will be the disclosure, the revealing of the inner witness of a person's person's conscience, and along with that, the conflicting thoughts known only to them and to God. They won't be able to hide. They won't be able to bury them. They won't be able to get rid of them. What will be revealed is all of that stuff, those secret thoughts that will reveal that there were times, maybe many times, that they knew in their heart that what they were doing was absolutely wrong. But they did it anyway. And that will establish their absolute guilt before God. You understand? I didn't know. Really? Let me unfold before you how many times your conscience bore witness to the law of God, the moral requirements I stamped and wrote on your heart. Let me show you how many times you knew Your soul was even trembling as you entered in. You were shaking. Something was going on. You were having a reaction. You knew it was wrong. And you did it anyway. You see? So everyone, beloved, everyone, Jew and Gentile, possess in full or in part a knowledge of God's law or God's will for how they shouldn't and shouldn't behave. I hope you were able to see that from the text. Now, it's this next point that really kind of drives the nails in the, in the coffin. That condemns man. And leaves them hopeless without the gospel. Point two. No one. So everyone has a knowledge. Some knowledge. Fuller part. Of what God requires of them morally speaking. And no one has ever lived up to that knowledge of God's law that they possess, making every single person guilty before God and deserving of condemnation. Paul says in verse 12, referring to the Gentiles, that all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Why? Why is that true? Verse 14, because we've just been talking about it. Ultimately, they knew in their heart what was morally right and wrong. It had been stamped there, placed there by God. They had God's law written on their hearts. And their conscience that God gave them was continually bearing witness to that law. And yet, they still chose to sin or disobey to do that which they knew their heart, which their heart told them was absolutely wrong. For the Jew... Those who had the written law of God in detail. Paul says of them that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. And in the context of this, beloved, that word judgment implies they will be condemned. Not exonerated, not let off the hook, but condemned under the law that they are so proud to possess. Look back at the text. Why is that true, Paul? Why will the Jews also be condemned under the law? Romans 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law, not those who hear it, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or made right with God. Here is the issue. You've got to get this historically. Here's the issue that Paul is addressing concerning the Jews in the first century when he wrote Romans. They wrongly thought, wrongly thought that just because they were possessors of the law and regularly had it taught to them, heard it, studied it, that they had some advantage over the Gentiles who did not have the law, 
And even beyond that, that they were guaranteed immunity from God's judgment for their sin. Because they had the law. Paul wants to destroy that false notion by saying this. Guess what, guys? It's not the hearers of the law. It's not the studiers of the law. It's not those who possess the law who are righteous before God, but it is rather those who do or comply with the law who are justified or declared right with God. You with me? Now here's the problem. This is the problem. This is the problem for the Jew and this is the problem for you if you want to place yourself under the law of God, if that's how you want to live. And you think by doing that you could be made right with God. Here's the problem. The statement that Paul makes in verse 13, that statement, it is the doers of the law, not the hearers of the law, who are right with God, who are just with God. It is a hypothetical statement. It is a hypothetical statement because while it is true statement in theory, it is a true statement in theory, it has never been true of any person outside of Jesus Christ. Never. Because all fail to perfectly comply with God's law. Therefore, none are justified in his sight by the works of the law. Beloved, if you could keep in perfection all that the law of God requires, never breaking it, do what is morally right every single time, then you would be just with God. You wouldn't be a sinner. There'd be some other classification. Righteous. You would be perfectly righteous. This statement is a hypothetical. Because as we read, this is exactly, we just read a few verses over, chapter 3, verse 20. So listen, before we read this, Paul just got through saying, it is not the hearers of the law, but the doers, those who comply with the law, who are right with God, right? Then he goes in 3.20. But just so you understand, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You want to know what the law gives you? It gives you more knowledge about how you mess up with God. It reveals to you just how wretched you are. Oh, you, you thought this was okay? Eh, that's not okay either. You thought you were doing well here? Eh, you compare your life to the law of God? Great, man. This is, I'm losing bad. Yeah, that, the law comes in and it exposes just how much of a sinner we are. You think the law justifies you? Really? As a sinner, you'd have to do it perfectly to be justified by the law. Paul also says in chapter 3, before he makes that statement, both Jew and Gentile, in case you're not sure, are unrighteous. Verses 9 and 10. And all people, chapter 3, verse 23, have sinned. All have sinned. There are none who have been or can be made right with God by being doers of the law. Why? Because, listen to me, because all fail to do the law without fail. All. Jews, you're so proud of the law you possess. You think the law is going to be your scapegoat out? Don't you know it's not the hearers of the law that are made right with God, but the doers of the law? And no one does the law in perfection. And that's God's requirement. He doesn't say 80% of the law, 50% of the law. You do it all and you'll be just before me. Who's ever done that? Just so you understand, Paul makes this point again in Galatians. You know why he makes it in Galatians? The Judaizers, the Judaizers that's what they're referred to. Jews who are still committed to the Jewish ways... In the Christian church, they come into the Christian church and they say to the Christian church, you must comply with everything in the law in order to be saved. You must. And if you don't comply with everything in our law, 
you cannot be saved. So here's what Paul says. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Relying mean relying on it to make them right with God. Every single person who relies on the law to make them right with God, they're under a curse. Why, Paul? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Huh? So how many people then who want to be under the law are cursed? All of them. And so Paul, that right, it's evident, right? That's what he says, verse 11. Now it is evident, it's obvious, come on, that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is made right, declared right with God. No one is accepted by God through trying to keep the law. Because in order to do it, they would have to do it perfectly. And then he says, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, beloved, if you've been with us, that passage was in Romans 1.17. Paul also said that statement there. We know, and he said it in relation to the gospel, that the righteous shall live by faith. And let me remind you what I said about it when we talked about it in Romans 1.17. Those who have been declared right with God are those who live by faith. Faith in the gospel of God. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what He alone has done to make them right with God. Faith not in their righteousness, but faith in the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ that has been credited to their account. The faith, or the righteous, shall live by faith. That's obvious. They cannot be made right with God by trying to live up to all the standards of the law. They'll never do it. Even though a lot of religions teach that. One writer says this, Since no human being, Jesus Christ accepted, He's the only exception to this rule. He did do all that was required by Him, by God. He did do it all. He never sinned. No human being except Jesus Christ can be declared righteous, justified by God on the basis of His own merit, His own doing. Every human is condemned by God. Every single one. At this point in Paul's argument, in this section, the way a person can secure a righteous standing before God has not yet been presented. You've got to understand, we're moving through the book of Romans. So he doesn't now stop here and say, but don't you worry. He's going to get there. But right now, he's trying to bring everyone under condemnation. So that when he gets to the gospel, they stand back and go, oh my. I cannot believe what Jesus has done for me. I cannot believe it. That's what he's doing. Here is the emphasis is on the justice of God's judgment leading to the conclusion that nobody on his own can be declared righteous by God. That's the point. Paul is continuing to hammer away. He'll continue to do it through the next section of chapter 2 and a little bit into chapter 3. He'll continue to hammer away. He's just taking away any trust in ourselves or our self-righteousness to make us right with God. He removes it all. He destroys it all. Another writer says this, the good news of salvation, the good news, the gospel, shines forth brightly when it is seen against the dark background of divine judgment. That's what I told you in the beginning. That's what I was introducing to you in the beginning. We cheapen the gospel. Now listen, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs, instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. Do you understand that statement? We che- Listen, does the gospel rescue us from unhappiness? You bet it can. And fear? Absolutely. And guilt? Oh my, yes. Oh my. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that the gospel rescues me from my condemnation of guilt and all those things. I love that I'm not afraid anymore. 
I can face life bravely knowing whose I am and who is mine. But if we remove the element of wrath, condemnation, hell, fire, if we remove that from our preaching, from our explanation of the gospel, if we take that out of the background, we cheapen the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take away the glory of it. We diminish it. And we should not do that. We should not do that. Whether it be us speaking it to someone else or whether we're telling it to our own hearts. Remember, when you're preaching that gospel to yourself, remember from which or what it actually saved you. And when you think on that, you won't have any problems showing up on Sunday. Uh, Hey, it won't be as hard to get out of bed. You'll have less trouble wanting to read these love letters that God has written to you. You'll have less trouble volunteering to serve the body of Christ. It won't be a burden to you anymore. It'll actually be a privilege, an honor, a wonder that God would not only save you, but then let you participate in His good things and in the life of the church. You're blown away by the whole thing in light of the gospel, in light of the wrath of God that you deserve. Listen, as I conclude, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you have a saving relationship as with Jesus Christ, we move through the book of Romans. I've said it now 20 times. I'll say it one more time. It should remind you of the fact, this is what it should do. You read through this section, you don't go, oh, I hate this section. Just skip right past it. Just remember, you know, all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, all of it for reproof, for teaching, for correction, right? All of it, that the man of God might be equipped, completely, thoroughly equipped, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. That's why we don't skip stuff. We just keep plowing through it because we know every piece of it is for us. So we look at that and we go, okay, God, what do I do with this, man? Here's what you do with it. Here's what you deserved. You were guilty before me, but in my love and grace and mercy, I reached out to you. I rescued you. And beloved, we could be rescued in a lot of different ways. We could be rescued, you know, from dying in a car accident, right? Rescued on the battlefield, rescued whatever, a house collapsing on us, right? We would be, whoever our rescuers are, you always see it, right? Oh, I'm so grateful for these rescuers. Oh, I owe them everything. I'll do anything for you, right? Listen, Jesus didn't just rescue you so you could live a few more years. He rescued you from the eternal flames of hell. He rescued you and me from that, if you're a Christian. And He rescued us not just from that, but unto the eternal glories of heaven. I can't even believe it. I can't, I just, and when I think about that, what's my response? Lord, not, I'm just not thankful. Here I am, take my life. You've given me life. You have my life, Lord. You have my life. Beloved, when you begin to look at church history and you see what Christians have sacrificed for the gospel, for Christianity, what they've given up, even their own lives, even all of their comforts they've given up they've chosen to walk away done crazy things risked everything for god why in the world would they do that i'll tell you why they got a hold of the gospel they got a hold of the gospel they began to meditate on the gospel they saw the gospel in the light of the darkness of divine judgment and they were brought low and they looked up and they glorified their God and they said to Him, Whatever you want to do with my life, Lord, so be it. So be it, for you have saved me. It is the Gospel, beloved. In the midst of that darkness that moves us, that will change our lives. We need to know it, we need to think on it, we need to meditate on it, 
We need to speak it to each other. And finally, if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I I say this frequently, because there's at least one in this room. Numbers tell us that. Statistics, probably more. There's probably more in this room who really don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't. They may say they do, but they don't. And I'm not thinking about anyone right now. I'm just saying I know it to be true. Then you remain guilty before God. You will have no excuse on that day of judgment. You are under His wrath right now. You are awaiting His condemnation. But listen... It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. That does not have to be your situation. That does not have to be your destiny. Because of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, 16 and 17. I hope today, today, beloved, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I hope today you would change that. I hope you would place your faith in Him. I hope you would confess to Him, I am a condemned man or woman. I am guilty before you and I do deserve to be punished. But I believe the truth about Jesus Christ. I believe He is the Savior of sinners. And I believe that He died in my place taking all of the wrath that is due me. He took it as my substitute. And I can't believe this, God, but Your Word says it, so I must He credits to me His perfect righteous life, making me fully acceptable to you, God, forever and opening the door to all of your eternal blessings. You say that, you believe that, the Bible says you will be saved. I hope you will. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You Thank you for who you are. You are awesome. You are glorious. You are exalted. You are almighty. You are just. Oh, you are holy, God. And I say that in fear because I am not holy. I am a sinner. Recognizing the gap that exists between you and me is a fearful thing if it were not for Jesus Christ, the one who has bridged that gap, the one who has reconciled me to you, God, reconciled me, made me right with you. I was once an enemy, but now I am your friend. More than that, I am your child forever. You have adopted me into your family, and because of that, I am entitled to all the blessings that you give your children. In fact, Father, you have made me a co-heir with your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. And I deserved none of it. Clearly, as I read through the book of Romans, I deserve the exact opposite. Father, thank you for the great salvation you have given me and many men and women and, and even boys and girls in this room. We are We are forever grateful. Lord, may our lives reflect the reality of that gratefulness. May it begin to motivate us to really really get serious about you. And Lord, we are forgetful people, so will you help us again and again to remember the gospel. Not only that we have been saved, but what we've been saved from. (laughs) That's the key. Father, for those that are here that don't 
They don't have a relationship with you, Lord. Every week I'm praying, I'm urging, I'm crying out. Please, Father, please do what only you can do to break through all that junk, all those walls that they build up, all those excuses. Father, through your Spirit, even now, convict them. And may they see the truth that we've read in Romans, that they stand condemned. No one will have an excuse before you on that day. No one for their sin, for their disobedience to what you expect of them morally. And Father, may they find themselves in an absolute helpless position and then see Jesus Christ as He truly is. The ultimate Savior. The only one that can help them, that can rescue them, that can redeem them, that can set them free, that can grant them forgiveness of every single sin and credit to their bankrupt account His very righteousness. A righteousness that every single one of us needs in order to stand before God and be accepted by Him. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We're so grateful. And Father, I pray you would save one more, maybe two, maybe three, Lord, maybe more than that today as they hear this word as you convict their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.